It's all about performance. Consistent, reliable, delivering results with a focus on well-being to keep you ahead and on top of your game. And at the heart of it all, there has to be trust. Performance, well-being, trust. The value's key to the success of Hoover, principal club sponsor of Warrington Wolves. Values also embraced by The Wire, which is why, together, we make the perfect team. Hoover and Warrington Wolves. Packed more performance. Discover more at hoover.co.uk. Welcome to the Through the Wire podcast. I'm Liam Brown. Today's guest was a Warrington Wolves player for 17 years, known as the toughest man in sports for the outside world. On the inside, he was struggling with OCD, anxiety, and depression. His journey to where he is today is both fascinating and inspiring. So let's meet Paul Wood. So Paul, welcome to the show. Uh, you've been in delivering some mental health awareness sessions here to the staff and the coaching staff here at Warrington Wolves. How have you found that? Yeah, it's been interesting. Um, it's been good. I've enjoyed it. Um, you know, being able to deliver to the, the staff and as you say, you know, the coaching staff to, you know, give some education on well-being and, you know, hopefully to help enhance, you know, the people that are in the organisation because, you know, it's sometimes it's difficult, um, you know, especially when results are not going your way and you're under pressure. So, you know, the, the chance to be able to deliver that and, you know, maybe help them and support them and, um, you know, give them some take-out on tasks to, to go away and practice has been really good and it's, it's always good to come back to Warrington and, and offer something back. Yeah, and I think the staff have got quite a bit out of it as well. One of the things that you sort of uh, delivered to us that uh, finding three things you're grateful for every day is, is something that will really help you and we've all been trying to do that in the office. We've actually all found it very, very useful so you've, you've helped a lot of us with that. Yeah, something as simple as, you know, just practicing a gratitude list. It, you know, it's, it's that positive psychology, putting a positive spin on things. And sometimes we neglect it. Sometimes it's quite easy to focus on the negatives. And, you know, just, again, it's just a simple task. You know, what are you, what are you grateful for? You know, three things that, you know, we can all be appreciated of. And, you know, it shows that, you know, we, we, we can enhance our well-being just by writing three simple things down and, you know, it's something I practice on a daily basis, so I know that it works, and I know that the people that we work with, um, you know, it, it works for them as well. So it's it's really good. It's you know, get, get a positive message back, and it's very rewarding to to hear the feedback that we get. And you put a little bit of your story in there. Um, you talked about your struggles a little bit with, well, quite a lot with uh, anxiety and OCD. Obviously, uh, anxiety is linked to OCD. Was were you always like that as a kid or, or did it develop as you got older? Yeah, I've, I've always been an anxious kid. I've always been, um, well, I say always, you know, I felt like I didn't have any fear as, as, you know, from the ages of, as long as I can remember up until the age of ages of 12. But um, once I got to the age of 12, I was sort of always had this fear and panic around, you know, dying or getting illnesses. And uh, just stemmed from there, really. So from the ages of 12, I, I developed... A lot of um, quite a lot of anxiety and um, you know I had panic attacks didn't understand what it was but I, I was having them and um, 
on the back of that, I started performing rituals and um, specific behaviours that was helping me to control my stress and my anxiety. So, this um, is a teenager. This is as a teenager, yeah. So again, this is from you know it. It mainly started in high school for me. So as I started in high school, and um, you know, yeah, I've, I've, I dealt with that quite a lot. But you know, the saving grace for me was rugby league because um, I didn't think about this stuff when I was playing and when mm-hmm. I was training and. I was very fortunate, you know, as a young a young lad. I mean, we speak about kids over playing sport now, but there wasn't one day in the week when I wasn't playing rugby or training. It was either play for my school, play for the town team, play for my local amateur club. And if I wasn't playing, I was training. So every day of the week, I was doing something and I fully enjoyed it. But, you know, looking back and, and, and uh, you know, reflecting... That rugby league was always an area where I felt like I was in control, so mm. I didn't have any worries when I was on the rugby field. Uh, if I was playing, training, whatever I was doing, exercising, that that was like my safe zone. Mm. Away from that, I did have a lot of struggles, um, and again, it just escalated as I got older. Really, yeah. Do you think? Like, I know you've got a son that's that's around about that age now. Do you think that the world's a better place for for dealing with problems like that? It definitely more of help out there, yeah. Um, and it's interesting you ask that question because, you know, my own son, um, you know, he's, he's got some of these tendencies that I had at, at his age, he's 14. Almost genetic, um, isn't it? it? It seems that way, yeah. You know, there's, he's had a completely different upbringing to me and um, far more privileged than I was as a kid, but he's, he's got some of the traits that I'm developing. Now, the great thing about it is his daddy's told me mm. and I can completely identify with where he's at and where his thinking's at. So I'm able to help him. Mm. And he's panicking a little bit and sometimes he, he puts himself down because he feels like he shouldn't feel this way, but I'm, I'm encouraging him. And I found uh, clips on YouTube where... Um, successful people, celebrities, and um, you know, successful businessmen have spoke about having these similar mm. thoughts as as, as kids. Um, so it just reinforces that it can be normal, but it, sometimes you just need a bit of help and a bit of yeah. uh, guidance, and you know, you may need a bit of counselling. It's not got to that stage yet, but to answer your question, there's far more help out there now because we're more aware of it. Mm. So it's interesting you mentioned that you can be really high functioning. Um, and still have a lot of these problems. Sometimes you find that um, the insecurities are driving people on to do things like you just mentioned that rugby was your escape a little bit. Maybe it was, rugby was your way of medicating yourself a little bit as well. Yeah, definitely. You know, and um, again, I, you know, from some self-reflection and speaking to other people, and you know, I've read a couple of books as well and spoke to clinical psychologists and. You know, elite level people tend to have um, extreme behaviours, and and I had some really, really extreme behaviours. But there was sort of a really good driving force within the industry that I was in in rugby. Mm. You know, and um, I was able to channel that and use those behaviours as a, as a major driving force to help me ex, uh, excel. And um, you know, I was I was picked for Great Britain a couple of times. I played for England a couple of times. That's the elite level of this sport. You know, mm. you can't get any higher. So. You know those behaviours served me really well, um, so there was some positives to it. But I think again, on self-reflection and in hindsight, I would have liked to get maybe a little bit more balance on my behaviours, and yeah. that's what I have today. I think it, it probably took me to step away from rugby and still have the behaviours that I have, but showing that they don't really serve me in everyday life. Mm. Um, rugby league or sport in general 
is it's not real world. I understand that now. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a completely different environment. Um, the things that you, the way that you need to succeed and the extreme levels that you have to get to uh, in sport is is just not real world. And some of those behaviours I've had to really manage. I've had to lose some of them. I've had to sort of reinvent myself and sort of deconstruct myself and put myself back together in some respects um, to become the person I am today. So, you know, the the person that I was on the field, I feel like is completely different today. And I'm sure the people closest to me had said the same thing as well. Mm. And and did these this OCD behaviour and the anxiety and everything, did it get worse as you turned pro? Because you, you've obviously got... You, it's a different situation playing for sort of Wigan Town team than it is playing in the grand final and all those eyeballs on you. Did, 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 did it get worse trying to do that? Yeah, I think so. I, I remember um, I remember being 18 and playing in the academy and um, just it just being absolutely wild, uh, performing rituals and doing certain behaviours and thinking a specific way. And I remember, I actually remember the game. I remember being um, at Wildersburg playing against Castleford. And in the academy, I could play 80 minutes. It was no problem. And I remember asking to come off at half-time because it drained me so much. I had literally had no energy. And that's one of the first times that I spoke to the doctor um, at Warrington. And so that was as an 18-year-old kid. But I didn't seek any advice after that. Mm. So it was like is everything okay yeah yeah I'm alright and it really wasn't um, and then it took me to the age of about 21 when I first uh, went and actually went to my local GP and said look this is what I'm doing um, this is how I'm feeling I'm feeling really low at this point as well um, and you know I seeked a little bit of help but again I didn't mm. I didn't really pursue it as, as, as I should have done and I just if I'm honest with you sometimes when I felt like I was getting better I felt like I was missing out on something so I'd, I'd start performing the behaviours again it had, yeah. it had become a part of me yeah. and it felt special to have that but um, yeah it was in my 30s when I when I actually thought you know what I can't keep living my life like this this is this is affecting me massively now so you know I was still playing at Warrington at the time so I'd have been what 30, 31 and the club was um, so helpful for me uh, in the fact that the sent me to a psychologist who was like one of the best in the country dealing with OCD and he put this new program together which was sort of like a combination of mindfulness and CBT and you know once I'd completed that 12 weeks um, I, I felt like I was fixed yeah. and I've, I've never suffered with it since so it, it obviously worked Yeah. and what kind of things are we talking about that you, you do um, your rituals as you, as you say um, so it would be like some of the rituals that I'd do I'd turn light switches on and off constantly I'd constantly pull my handbrake up on my car I would constantly wash my hands um, but under very very hot extreme water um, so it was literally burning your skin uh, yeah reverse and park my car I'd be walking up and down stairs a certain number of times because in particular like the number 13 well mm. anybody listening to this go and count how many steps are in your house when you walk <laughs> upstairs there's nine times out of ten there's 13 <laughs> so I would walk up and then walk back down a couple and go back up yeah. so little things like that but um, 
it, it's the intrusive thoughts that you get as well if you don't do that specific behaviour what the outcome's going to be mm. on the back of that that catastrophising yeah yeah, yeah catastrophising behaviour feeling like you're going to lose relatives loved ones you're going to lose uh, your financial um, gains you're going to lose your properties and you know your children are going to get sick it's all this stuff that you start thinking if I don't do this this potentially might happen and they call that magical thinking that you can control every outcome in your life. Mm. You know, it was a nightmare when I was going on holiday or in pre-season camp because I'd, I'd get on a plane. So yeah. you can imagine a week, two weeks before, I was absolutely petrified from so performing all these rituals, thinking if I do this, the plane's not going to crash. Yeah. And that, that was how my head was working. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it basically dominated my life, it really did. Mm. And do you think that routine and structure of being a professional sportsman can feed into that a little bit it's it's almost encouraging in a lot of ways isn't it and if you've got those tendencies it can be it can be difficult to shake them can't it yeah I mean look there's a lot of professional athletes who love structure routine and they have um, superstitions and stuff but it's they have a they have a balance on it it's not affecting their life and sometimes it's just a case of you know they only have a superstition on match day but, but for me the difference for me and having a superstition is, is that it's them intrusive thoughts what come with it. You know, mm. if you don't perform something, something really bad's going to happen. And on that, you know, you get a lot of anxiety and stress. Um, so, you know, there's a, there is a difference between having a routine and superstition to having OCD. And, you know, I always laugh about OCD cleaners on Channel 4. It's like the sort of the, the mental illness that's laughed about, really. Mm. And it's all about cleaning, but it's really not. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not just about cleaning. Yeah, people make that joke all the time, don't they? If they'd like a tidy house, they joke they've got OCD. I've got OCD, it? yeah. yeah. Or oh, if somebody has the radio on an even number in the in the car, they say, oh, it's my OCD. And it's like, well, no, that's not what obsessive-compulsive disorder is. That's yeah. more of a superstition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, how did a kid from Wigan end up on a scholarship at Warrington? Uh, well, what happened uh, there was I was playing for I was playing for Instant Williams at the time, and we had a couple of um, scouts come watching us. Uh, first of all, it was at St Helens, and I managed to get a couple of training sessions down at Knowsley Road, playing for the academy. Uh, sorry, training with the academy. They didn't offer me a scholarship um, or a contract at the time, but. What happened was um, Warrington came in to sign me and found out that I was training at St Helens and said, look, we'll be willing to offer you a contract. And at first I was thinking, well, I might hold out and see what Saints say. But mm-hmm. the scout at the time at Warrington was Jack Reader and he said, no, we really want to sign you. We'll look after you if you come down. Um, so they offered myself, Mark Leeson and Dave Olstead a contract. And we never looked back really. We signed it there and then. And, you know, the story goes and my lad at the minute, he's just been scouted for Wigan and the scout there said, oh, if you would have waited another week, I would have signed you at Wigan, but <laughs> it, it wasn't to be. So, yeah, I was I was quite fortunate. I had a couple of clubs looking, but I'd, it always felt right to sign for Warrington because, you know, I loved watching Wigan and I used to go to Central Park every match and sit on the white wall and watching Blitz teams every week. And, you know, there was a great team. I'm dead fortunate that I, I could watch that team every week, but... You know, Warrington was always my second favourite team. I loved watching Wigan and Warrington at Central Park. I loved what the fans were about because the yeah. fans were absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to like the big yellow and blue jackets with the wolf on the back back in the 90s. And I just loved what, what the players were about because it was aggressive. Um, so when I got an opportunity to sign here, I thought, you know what, 
I'll take it. And uh, it, it turned out to be the best option for me. There's a reason they used to call Wilderspill the zoo, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, you know, they've always been known, Warrington, as an aggressive team. And I mean, when you go back to the Wilderspill days, like Wilderspill was a special stadium if you played for Warrington because some great players who played there it was an intimidating ground it was an absolute dump when I played there <laughs> do you know what I mean we tried dressing up as much as we can but it yeah. was a dump yeah. uh, and it and it needed moving on but Wilderspiel will always have a special place in my heart I, I absolutely loved playing there when you got a packed crowd at Wilderspiel yeah there might have only been 7,000 on there but it was absolutely bouncing yeah. um, I, I love the place and again when I played for the academy we used to play all our own games at, at the actual professional ground. You right. would always be the curtain raiser before the first team. So, yeah, I've got some very fond memories of that. And um, I can understand why they call it the zoo. Uh, <laughs> because, uh, and obviously back in them days, the players were aggressive, you know. Yeah. Uh, Mike Nicholson and, you know, Paul Cullen, Les Boyd, Kevin Tamate, all these tough, tough men, Mike Gregory. Um, you know, they were really, really tough blokes and nobody liked going there. And that's something Paul Cullen used to bring into Warrington. He said, we need to make sure that whatever home ground we're playing on, that we have a fortress and it's, it becomes a zoo. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you think players like Mike Nicholas, who uh, is, is rumoured to be the cleanest player ever rugby league ever because he got sent off for an early bath so many times. <laughs> yeah, Mike's, uh, yeah, Mike was a, an aggressive player. Uh, I think he's got more red cards than anybody in rugby league, Mike. Uh, but yeah, but that, that's what, um, you know, Mike played in one of the most successful teams in Warrington and, and that's what they were built off, the level of aggression, you mm-hmm. know, and um, speak to Paul Cullen about it, the fact that they knew that they weren't as skillful as Wigan, mm-hmm. you know, Wigan had all the top professionals, they was full-time, they knew skill-wide they weren't going to beat them, so how else could they do it? Try and get into the reds and just be so aggressive that they put them off the game, Yeah. Um, and that's how, how, how Warrington built a team and a club, and, you know, I, I, I I believe like Paul Cullen trying to instill that back in uh, when we when he come back as a head coach. Um, so yeah, Warrington's always been renowned for the tough, aggressive forwards. And what was your best moment in a Warrington shirt? Uh, yeah, be- best moment. Um, obviously, winning a couple of Challenge Cups was good. I like the fact that you know I'm able to reflect back on my career and, and look at two Grand Final, uh, sorry, two Challenge Cup wins. And one of the best moments in a shirt was actually every time we won the Challenge Cup, we sat round on the pitch afterwards and had a beer as a team and with the lads. And that's they're the best moments. You know, mm. the games are great, but it's it's the relief of winning a cup, uh, playing in front of seventy thousand people when everybody's left that stadium and it's just you and the lads who have been yeah. on that field and you sat having a beer. That's absolutely priceless. You can't you can't put a price on that. But uh, I think I mean. The fact I got to play in two grand finals, but I loved playing against my hometown club Wigan in a grand final. Uh, there's not a day goes by where I don't think about winning that game because we were 16-4 up at half-time. Um, and other than getting a couple of injuries, I think we would have won that game and I think that grand final would have would have been ours, but it wasn't to, wasn't to be. But you know, a Wigan lad playing against Wigan in the grand final and if we'd have beat them, that would have been the, the fairy tale ending, but it wasn't to be. But 
grand finals were a special moment you know mm. again even though we didn't win them grand finals were special um, it's literally the two top teams in the division going head to head uh, for one trophy yeah diff- different atmosphere as well those games aren't they it's yeah not- definitely you know the Wembley it's in summer it's nice and warm it's it's in day and you know you it's a different experience because you've got to travel down to London and you've got to play in the Challenge Cup there and it's just completely different work you know when you play in a grand final it's it's in October it's getting chilly there's you know there's there's moisture on the grass and you know the floodlights are on it's it, 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 it's it's hard to explain it's a game of rugby but it's a completely different experience and you don't have to travel four hours to get to the stadium you're literally half an hour away mm-hmm. so it, it's special the grand final I, you know I do say you know if I had a chance to swap a challenge cup for a grand final I would 100% do it because um, yeah it's, it's one of my biggest downfalls is that I do think about that Wigan game every yeah. day and it doesn't help because when I take my lad now to the, the Wigan Warriors training ground there's a picture up of uh, the Wigan Warriors team in 2013 <laughs> celebrating with a trophy in the changing room and I look at it every time and just shake my head so I'm reminded constantly about that uh, but again you know f- to answer your question though the, the, I had loads of fond memories in a Warrington shirt but I think you know playing in the grand finals with you know some great guys Lee Brewers Adrian Morley Benny Westwood you know fantastic mm-hmm. And do you think the the weight of history uh, weighed on those teams a little bit in, in those grand finals, or is it more as time's gone on that it's 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 become a bit more a bit more of an issue? I think as time goes on, I think it's definitely going to become more of an issue. Um, I, I likened it to you know when we played Centellins. I, I played against Centellins in two thousand and one when we beat them in Super League for the first time. But then we didn't beat them for 10 years. And every single year, there was more pressure to beat Saints. Mm. Um, now, whether that come from internally on ourselves or whether from the fans and, and the directors, I'm not sure. But when we got to grand finals against Leeds, yeah, there was an element of stress. It was the first Warrington team to get to a grand final. We felt like we should have won that. Uh, we was in a good position. But the pressure probably did get to us. Mm. You know, um, Leeds had experienced that firm more many times than us. And again, we got ourselves into a, a good position, but we lost. When we went in against Wigan um, the year after, there was no pressure. There was no mm. pressure. And I think it showed, again, you know, we were 16-4 up. Yeah. And other than Joel Manahan and um, Steph Ratchford getting injured, mm. two severe injuries, which put us down to 15 uh, players, then just two subs on the bench. Catastrophic for us, but we didn't feel any pressure. We knew we were going to win that game. Mm. Um so yeah, it's and now the, the you know there's been two other grand finals on the back of that for Warrington, and every time they lose now, there's going to be more pressure, more pressure, more pressure. So they need to they need to get the first, but then they need to win it yeah. because you know we don't want to be seen as the team that always bottles it in the grand final. You know, and I, I'd love nothing more than the new crop of players coming up here to to win one of them because it's something I've not experienced and it's. It's a big regret, you know. Yeah. You do you do live with it. You you often wonder, well, what if? And you know, you'd love to have a Super League Grand Final ring. It's not to be, but I'd love these guys to be able to do it. Yeah, we've spoken to quite a few players actually, and and, and a big driver for for being here and the thing that motivates them every day is to get to the point where they, they do win a Grand Final Warrington shirt because you know that that team that does finally win it one day will be immortals in this time. Yeah, that's it, it, it and that's that's the thing. It's like. 
Once they win that, they'll be the immortals. They'll be mm. like the first Super League team yeah. to win you it. You could win it ten times after, but that first team that first win. one is going to be special. It is, and and you know what? If I'm honest, I'm gutted that I'm not part of that because mm. um, you know two opportunities to do it and never done it. Mm. I'll be so jealous of those guys who actually win that grand final for Warrington, but I'll be praying for them that they do win it because mm. um, it'll be a special moment in them. You know, I've had my career, my time's been done. Um, I couldn't give any more to the cause, but it wasn't meant to be. So hopefully that, you know, the youngsters coming through. And I, I've been fortunate, I've caught some of the youngsters, you know, Ellis Longstaff, who's come through, um, you know, Phil Lewis. Um, I've, I've caught some of them lads and the great, the great kids, you know, so I, I know how hard they work, so they deserve it if they, if they win it. Yeah, you, you talked about uh, leaving it all out there. One of those uh, grand finals uh, produced... <laughs> Produced an incident that uh, helped you win the title of the toughest man in sport. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, toughest athlete in the world. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was. It, it, it always gets mentioned, you know, this this injury in the grand final, and yeah, unfortunate for me. I, you know, kicked off the second half, took the ball in, and, and ruptured a testicle, and stayed on the field. I don't know whether that was bravery or stupidity. I don't know what it was, but. Did you know what you'd done was that bad at the time, or did you think you'd been knocked, knocked there and well, hurt a bit? I think the fir- at first it was like I've been whacked, and I stared down, and the physio came on and he tried to put some water on, and I'm like, "This is this is pretty serious." This I said, "The pain." Did, did the water really help? No, the water didn't help. <laughs> Definitely didn't. I was saying to the physio, "I said, what's that doing?" I said, "It's not doing anything." I said, "Just get off, leave me on for another twenty minutes, and then bring me off." Um, but. I, I sometimes joke about it, you know. If I was if I was playing on a Sunday afternoon in Wakefield, then mm. and it would have happened. I'd have probably stayed down and come off. But in a grand final, this is where the experience is different. The adrenaline's so high, you don't really feel that amount of pain. You feel something, but it's when you come off the field. Yeah. So I remember going in the changing rooms afterwards, and I jumped in the shower. And I was literally just on my hands and knees and I was saying to people, do you think it's bad this? And it was like, yeah, yeah, it is. It was massive. It was really big. And luckily, like the doctor who was um, not the club doctor, because that was Dr. Stockton. He did a great job. But Chris Brooks was there. He was the Great Britain doctor as well. And he got a second opinion. And Chris Brooks, um, Dr. Chris Brooks works at the uh, Salford Royal. Mm. So he got me in straight away and he said, look, I'm going to send you to hospital because that'll need to come out. He said, that's ruptured. So um, at the time, the media um, manager at Warrington, Rachel, she drove me to the hospital and uh, dropped me off at Salford and said, let us know how you get on. I walked <laughs> in and they literally went, get on this bed and we'll go and wheel you in and had an operation. And I was gutted because I was missing my end of season drink yeah. at, at the stadium. So, um, yeah, but it, it, the experience of that was unreal because of the amount of publicity that it got, it just... Yeah, it was worldwide uh, news, wasn't it? Worldwide and... Like, I've got a scrapbook of um, newspaper clippings that my friend did for me, and he said, I've looked on every single newspaper where you ran, and there was, like, Polish, Afghanistan, all these, like, <laughs> countries. Well, you've never heard of rugby leagues, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I've got, like, a folder at home, and it's got, like, news clipping after news clipping, America, Australia, there's everything in yeah. there. I suppose okay. every man in the world can sympathise with you a little bit, can't they? Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. And then you get women saying, well, you've not given birth, that's worse. <laughs> so I don't know about that. But yeah, it, all the men, like, they understand where you're coming yeah, from. Yeah. 
there's, so there's quite a bit of, of fame around that. You became a question on the million pound drop, didn't you? Yeah, it was a, a question. I sat there one night watching million pound drop, and my name come up and, and said, "Why did this player? Uh, what what was this player deemed to have done during a Super League grand final or something?" And then. I remember obviously one of the answers being up to the testicle, but one of the others was taken Viagra by mistake, and I can't remember <laughs> what the other one was. I can't remember. Um, all plausible fears, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, they all could have been true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was mad just watching that, and you, you sat there watching Channel Four Million Pound Drop, and the question. It's the only question I've ever got right. Yeah. On million Pound Drop. <laughs> Normally not that intelligent. Get anything else. <laughs> But yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was worldwide. It was it was massive, absolutely crazy. Um, was it was it tough for you to retire from the game, or did you get to the point where you were ready? I was I was ready. Um, you know, I, I left Warrington. Um, I left Warrington under a bit of a dark cloud, really. And again, it's probably a regret for me because I had a year left on my contract. But because I'd been here for seventeen years, I just felt like I needed a change. And mm. I said to Tony Smith, you know, I, I do need a change. I said, and I think playing another year here is too too much but it was the manner in which it happened because I'd started pre-season and it was coming up to Christmas and I didn't really give the, the club much time to replace me um, but I knew that I, I couldn't have done another season here it was too much for me to do another Super League year so I went to Featherstone and um, I fully enjoyed my time but even that I thought I think I'm ready to retire and my yeah. heart just wasn't in it and mm-hmm. um, so in terms of retiring, I knew that I'd done, I'd yeah. done, and I got fortunate enough that Paul Lowley rang me up, who was the head coach at Lee Centurions, and he said, do you think you're ready to retire? And I said, I don't think I know. I mm-hmm. said, I just, I don't want to do another pre-season, I don't want to train. And he said, come and help me do some coaching down at Lee. Um, he said, we'll get you on board, you know, we need to create a good culture and a professional environment down there, so I think you'd be ideal for us. So then I, I went into coaching and... I, I really didn't miss training. Mm. Uh, I didn't miss playing. None of yeah. it. Um, so I knew it was the right time, and I still don't. I still no. don't. But I miss those times where you, you know, you're playing at Wembley and you sat on mm. on the pitch with the cup and all that. Yeah. That's what I miss. Do you miss being in a team environment like that? It's hard to replicate that in in, in ordinary life, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, do you know what? I don't miss the team environment. No. Some I know some players say they miss the changing rooms. I don't. I still get a lot of that camaraderie and stuff with one with what I do at work. Uh, the people that I work with um, but my friends I've always kept all of my friends away from Mugba mm. um, so I still have friendships I still have bonds and um, probably you know whether I've changed as a person or not um, you know I don't really particularly enjoy the, the changing room banter and stuff yeah. like I do a few charity games and you know going back doing two or three charity games a year is enough you know mm. when you go in the changing room environment and that it's it's good and you have a good laugh but um, no nah, I don't really there's not much I miss no. probably a sign you've grown up that isn't it it's almost like you've got guys that are 32, 33, 34 in the changing room that are yeah. laughing and joking with 19 year old kids and it, you yeah. do tend to grow out of it don't you it, do you know what it is it's, it's 100% that you change because I often speak about the transition from rugby when you when you're a 30, 30 to 32 year old bloke and you're retiring from rugby it's like leaving school again mm. because ultimately and this is where I talk about rugby league not being real world it's when you go into a work environment it's completely different mm. it's like a schoolyard environment in rugby league I don't care what you say I've been involved in too many dressing rooms and experienced too much in rugby to you know to um, 
disagree with the fact that it's it's schoolyard banter in them changing yeah, yeah. rooms. Every change room I've been in, it's been there. I'm not saying you don't have intellectual people in there or people are not intelligent. They are, but it's just that you know within that environment, it's like going doing PE every day at school. Mm. It's just it's very childlike and immature. Mm. And you step away from it and you go, this is real world. It's not like. Mm. it is in a, in a changing yeah, room yeah. so you have to pull yourself in you have to learn some new lessons and you have to learn to adapt yeah and working within the NHS is probably a massive culture shift isn't it from a rugby <laughs> dressing room yeah it can be it can be unless you're working with um, some of some of the A&E staff they have some, uh, <laughs> some uh, yeah some, people coming in with ruptured testicles and yeah like yeah so they're used to obviously it, it, it's interesting really because it's, it's brilliant working with the NHS but they obviously deal with a lot and some mm. of it's dealt with humour mm. so it can be like a rugby league changing yeah. room you find that in the, in the forces as well don't you yeah exactly well we've just took a guy on who's ex-military background and exactly that you know you, you use a lot of humour and comedy to um, you know to deal with situations yeah, from the horror of what you deal with every day yeah, yeah. it's a, like a really big coping strategy so when we went working in the NHS to start with, we used to get a lot of people saying, oh, I apologise, I shouldn't have said that. This, we, I'd be laughing saying, it's like being in a changing room at rugby this. I said, it's no different. But, um, yeah, it's, it's such a rewarding job. And, you know, it, it, the array of characters and personalities that you have within the organisation, because when you think of NHS, you do think of doctors and nurses, but we're working with IT staff, we're working with HR staff, plumbers, electricians, you know, mm. porters, cleaners, there's, there's so many different variables that we're working with in terms of industries. It's unreal, so you get a good balance, really. How do you, uh, how do you spend your downtime? Oh, um, I've, en- I've enjoyed doing a lot of walking at the minute, so um, did all Manor Coniston the other di- week, part of the League Curs uh, Warrior Challenge, um, you know, walking Snowden, Yorkshire Three Peaks, uh, I just like getting out, um, mm. Even if it's just a simple, quick walk with my dog, yeah. um, I'm, I've gone. I'm boring, you know. I don't. I don't <laughs> do nothing exciting. Um, but yeah, I tend to go to the gym, and that's how I spend my time. But I'm, I'm really trying to like wind down because I've always been one of these characters who looks for extreme things to do. And mm. rugby did that, but mm. now I've not got rugby, and I'm getting older. And you know, after after, after all the operations I've had as well, my body's not the same. So I'm just trying to chill out a little bit with my time and. You know, spend time with my kids. I coach my lads' rugby team as well on a Tuesday and a Thursday, and they play on a Sunday, so that takes quite a lot of time. But um, yeah, in terms of spare time, it's walking, coaching, spending time with the kids. That type of thing. Seems like quite. Uh, you seem like you've been on quite a journey that's allowed you to mature um, and reach that point in your life where you do create that slower pace of life and the. And the sort of like, what you're teaching us about mindfulness today, and just being able to take things in yeah. in a way that you probably don't when you're going a million miles an hour. Yeah, I think it's a good, you know, a good thing to say about growing up and you know maturing because I've always sort of looked at people in me in my street where I live and think, when will I get to that point where I wash my car on a Sunday and cut <laughs> my grass and you know first one put the bin out. Yeah, it, yeah, put, put the bin. You know, I don't have to look what everybody else is putting out. <laughs> Oh, it's blue bin day today because everyone else has done it. So, you know, I, I've, I've tried to, it is like you say, it's growing up. It's about growing up and maturing and, uh, you know, I'm not saying I'm perfect because I'm not, but, um, yeah, I've had to, um, I, I said it earlier, you know, you, 
I feel like for me, I had to deconstruct myself and put myself back together because I couldn't be like the rugby player mm. because it didn't serve me anymore and mm. I had different values and I had different interests. So um, I enjoy what I do today. You know, try not to do too many things what are extreme and like mm. sim- simple life. And as long as everybody around me is happy and um, as long as everybody's happy and healthy around me, then I'm, I'm, I'm happy. We've got some generic questions. We try to sort of ask everybody these questions as we finish the podcast off. If you could meet anybody dead or alive, who would it be and what would you ask? Um, I, I'm, I'm massive into Jordan Peterson at the minute. He's a social, social psychologist. He's, he's, he's massive over the internet, um, YouTube, and I just love listening to his discussions and his views on life and how he puts things into context. He's talks about a lot of philosophy and he looks at a lot of psychologists and, and human behaviour and, and why we do the things that we do so mm. I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with him and um, you know just chat with him and he's far more intellectual than I am so he, he's difficult to he's one of them people when I listen to him I have to have a dictionary at the side of me just to <laughs> look at the words but um, yeah I, I love listening to him and, and what he's about I'm, I'm fascinated by human behaviour really yeah. um, and why we do the things that we do mm. and you know the fact that some things are wired into us and some things are learned behaviours so it's interesting to, to look at that and I think it's more about analysing myself really and you know how, how do I change and you know is this is this behaviour you know hardwired to me is it something that's within my DNA or you know is it is it a learnt thing or can I change it mm. and it's interesting it just fascinates me yeah I've actually got Jordan Peterson's book not read it yet but um, my missus hoping it'll make me make my bed in the morning but <laughs> 12 Rules for Life <laughs> yeah that's yeah, one yeah, yeah. yeah it's a good book again it's a, it's a difficult read but it's it's a really good book and you know, I like a lot of the stuff that he puts out there on YouTube and how he uses, um, you know, sort of religious stories to and the meaning behind them and the mm. stories behind them and, you know, um, the way that analogy, the way that he uses his analogies as well to, to explain why we think and behave the way that we do. So, yeah, it just fascinates me. It just fascinates me the way that we are. Uh, who has inspired you the most? Um, I think probably inspiration... I'd probably say like my grandparents really like my, my granddad um, my granddad Billy he, he when I was at Warrington I used to get the train to train and he'd pick me up every day but prior to that you know he's a hard working bloke he went on a building site every single day never missed a day's work yeah. honest as they come um, picked me up from training took me everywhere um, playing amateur rugby took me to training all them things and I think he was a big inspiration for me because like you don't realise at the time but just the little chats that you have in the cards, you know before you're before you're playing stuff and how he was instilling like belief into me and, and things like that and building my confidence up and uh, one thing that he was he was with me is honest if I didn't play that well he'd tell me but if I played well he'd tell me so mm. I think you know you look as you get older you realise you need them people in your life you know you don't want everybody telling you you're doing well when you're not you yeah. need some honesty and then you can self reflect and you can adapt and learn so I think I'd say like my granddad and both my granddads really have massive influences mm. they both brought different things to the table like my granddad George um, who my son's named after he was very articulate and he was a very successful businessman and you know he looked at things from a completely different angle than you know a lot of my other family members mm. did and he was a problem solver uh, yeah. and, and thought, of, thought of things like logically 
So yeah, I got a good balance with. I couldn't have asked for better grandparents, really. It's um, funny you just. I just listened to what you said then. When you mentioned your first granddad, you basically described who you appear to be now. Yeah, I think so. It's like you're admiring those qualities, and you've almost become those qualities at, at this this age. And you said you deconstructed yourself, perhaps unconsciously you've turned yourself into your granddad personality wise at, at this age yeah I think there's a lot of similarities between myself and my granddad and um, like I say he was honest as they come he, he wouldn't have a day off work he, you know if he found a tenant on floor he'd go in hand in he's that yeah, type yeah. of person and I suppose if I look back on my rugby career I, I wanted to always be remembered as a grafter who tried 100% not mm. always played well you know because mm. you have performances where you don't um, but I feel like I give 100% and that was you know, that was probably one of my biggest values when I was playing. Just be honest and just give 100% and mm. look yourself in the mirror after the game and say, like, you, you know, you put your body on the line. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Best piece of advice? Um, I think it'd have to be a wise man learns from his mistakes, but a wiser man learns from somebody else's mistakes. <laughs> so the fact that I can listen to people, speak to people, read books about what other people's experiences are about, and then take that advice and lesson and try and implement it into my own life instead of making mistakes constantly. Because uh, we all make mistakes and it's part of life, but sometimes they're unnecessary because if we just listen to what other people's experiences are telling us, mm. um, then you know we can make life a bit more simpler. So I think that's uh, one of the best bits of advice. It, that advice actually come from a book that I was reading. It was a, a book by Bruce, Bruce Lee, right. and it was one of these quotes that he put into the, in there, and it's always stuck with me. Mm. I just think it's a great bit of advice. And finally, what was the best thing about playing for the Warrington Wolves? Oh, there's, there's a lot, loads of things. There's, uh, just playing professional rugby as a young kid, you know, as a kid from Wigan wanting to play professional rugby, that, that was one of the best things. But I think the fact that I was part of the club when it was in that transition phase, you know, I signed here when Alfie Langan signed and, you know, we had a, some big name players and then we sort of dropped off and went to a relegation battle and then I was involved in the transition. So I think the best thing about being about this club is that I've seen it at the bottom, but I've also seen it where it's at the top. You know, I was part of a team that nearly got relegated, but a team that also won the League Leader Shield and got to Grand Finals and won Challenge Cups. That was that's immense, and to think that I played a part in that mm -hmm. in both experiences is uh, is really good. And you know, the, I love. There's nothing better coming into the club, especially like the gym, and you see the heritage numbers, and you see mine's 999 so it's dead easy to remember <laughs> and just seeing Paul Wooden think you know what I'm part of history I'm part of this club you know I think I'm in top 25 all time appearances for, for players at this club as well there's all a thousand people so that's mm. that's a pretty impressive thing for me yeah. um, I just loved everything about it I love everything about him that's why you still see me down here you know can't get, can't get rid of me <laughs> so yeah, everything about playing here, but I think, you know, the fact that I was part of this transition period coming in and um, helping the club to get a bit of success is, is, is massive. Our interview with Paul Wood, I think it's fascinating how he's turned so many negative things into his life, into positive things where he can spend every day helping people deal with the things that he had to deal with. Until next time, see you soon.